I want you to follow as I read Matthew 7, and I'm going to give you a heads up right now. That is that the message this morning and next week are two sermons you don't want to hear. They're two texts that most evangelical churches today avoid or will not preach, but we have to hear them. So listen carefully. Matthew 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, is thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Excuse me. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and it beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, it beat against the house, it fell. And great was the fall of it. I think this is probably mostly an American issue, but the church of 2021 is facing a growing, spreading, devastating pandemic issue. I want to read to you from David Platt's Follow Me. We have copies of this. They've graciously given to us by a Back to the Bible team. They're available in the lobby. I want to encourage you to take one. I want you to find somebody, not just take it and get, let it get dusty. I want you to take it, take the risk of reading it, and perhaps find some others who would be willing to meet you once in a while for a cup of coffee and discuss it together. Aeon is part of a people who pride themselves on being 100% Muslim. To belong to Aeon's tribe is to be Muslim. Aeon's personal identity, familial honor, relational standing, and social status are all inextricably intertwined with Islam. Simply put, if Aeon leaves her faith, she will immediately lose her life. If Aeon's family ever finds out that she's no longer Muslim, they will slit her throat without question or hesitation. Now imagine having a conversation with Aeon about Jesus. You start by telling her how God loves her so much that he sent his only son to die on the cross for her sins as her Savior. As you speak, you can sense her heart softening toward what you are saying. At the same time, though, You can feel her spirit trembling as she contemplates what it would cost her to follow Christ. With fear in her eyes and faith in her heart, she asks, how do I become a Christian? Now, you have two options in response to Aeon. 
You can tell her how easy it is to become a Christian. If Ayan will simply assent to certain truths and repeat a particular prayer, she can be saved. That's all it takes. Your second option is to tell Aeon the truth. You can tell Aeon that in the gospel, God is calling her to die. Literally. To die to her life. To die to her family. To die to her friends. To die to her future. And in dying, to live. To live in Jesus. To live as part of a global family that includes every tribe, to live with friends who span every age, to live in future where joy will last forever. Aeon's story is a clear reminder that the initial call to Christ is an inevitable call to die. Such a call has been clear since the beginning of Christianity. Four fishermen stood by the sea first century when Jesus approached them and said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. With that, Jesus beckoned these men to leave behind their professions, their possessions, their dreams, their ambitions, their family, their friends, their safety, their security. He bid them to abandon everything. If anyone is going to follow me, he must deny himself. Jesus would say repeatedly, in a world where everything revolves around self, protect yourself. Promote yourself, preserve yourself, entertain yourself, comfort yourself, take care of yourself. Jesus said, slay yourself. And that's exactly what happened. According to Scripture and tradition, these four fishermen paid a steep price for following Jesus. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified in Greece. James was beheaded. And John was exiled. Yet they believed it was worth the cost. In Jesus, these men found someone worth losing everything for. In Christ, they encountered a love that surpassed comprehension, a satisfaction that superseded circumstances, and a purpose that transcended every other possible pursuit in this world. They eagerly, willingly, and gladly lost their lives in order to know to follow, and to proclaim Him. In the footsteps of Jesus, these first disciples discovered a path worth giving their lives to tread. As Jesus comes to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, like a master teacher, He is unwilling to simply accept our approval or our expressions of great message, Pastor. But instead, He demands that we make a decision. He has given a series of wake-up calls in the Sermon on the Mount. He has talked about two kinds of righteousness, two kinds of treasure, two kinds of master, two kinds of ambitions, two kinds of kingdoms. And now he calls for a decision. He tells us there are only two gates, not three. Two kinds of paths, not three. Two kinds of destinations, two kinds of trees, two kinds of fruit, and two kinds of teachers. He begins with a mandate. He says, enter by the narrow gate. You see, in American evangelism, 
we have what my father would express as developed easy believism. That is, the gospel message is your life is a mess, Jesus loves you, pray the prayer, and all is well. The fact that nothing changes in your life, the fact that old sinful habits are not challenged or don't diminish is not an issue because, quite honestly, you prayed the prayer. Regrettably, my family erred on that side in my growing years. My dad grew up in a home where he was taught that you could lose your salvation. He said until he was 19 years old, he never went to sleep one night without the terrorizing thought that there might have been one or two sins that he had committed that he had forgotten to confess. And therefore, if he were to die during the night, he would wake up in hell and not in heaven. And then when he was a freshman in Bible college, he saw from the scriptures that God's salvation is God's work and not his work. And that God's salvation was a lasting one. It was an eternal one. He was so passionate about the peace that he discovered that whenever any of his children would raise a question about their own salvation, they would simply assure us that we, as a small child, had prayed the prayer. In my own situation, there were many times, obviously, when they should have raised the question, have you genuinely, truly believed? But if ever would come up to the question, they would revert back to something that happened in Mills, Nebraska, when I was four years old, when I was preparing a Christmas speech, and I prayed to trust Jesus as my Savior. It wasn't until I was 21 years old in Bible college, under the conviction of the reading of the Scripture, that I really genuinely came to know Christ. The scary thing about pastoring, I used to say this about youth ministry, and I also feel it often, is that, that we are surrounded by those who believe that they are Christians, and that their consciences have been pacified by having said a prayer at some moment. And what Jesus would remind us is not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will be saved. This is a sobering text. It's a sobering message, but it is Jesus' conclusion to the greatest sermon that was ever preached. His instruction is, enter by the narrow gate. He goes on to say that the gate is wide that leads and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. It's the popular road. It's the easy road. It's the, but the end result is it's the road with the destructive destination. To be easy simply means that it is broad and smooth, easy. You can find it. Everybody finds it. On this road, there is room for diversity of opinions. There's room for every form of moral conviction. There's room for tolerance. There's room for permissiveness. There are no boundaries. There's no rules. And there's no restraint. It's the attractive road. Now, lest you start pointing your finger at the Romans 1.18-32 crowd, remember that Jesus, when he's speaking the Sermon on the Mount, is speaking to those who are professing to follow him. They are the righteous of the community, not the certifiably unsavable pagans. They're described in the Pharisees and the disciples. And to those, he said, that most people walk on the wide, easy way. There is a wide gate. The beauty of the wide gate is you don't have to leave anything behind. Simply pray the prayer and go right on living the way you were living before. 
The fact that you profess to be a follower of Jesus, but there's no distinction between you and those who are not is not an issue because you're secure because you prayed the prayer. Proverbs 14.12 is repeated in Proverbs 16.25, our Sunday afternoon Bible study group. We've been reading through the book of Proverbs, and, and the first thing we notice is that he said exactly the same thing twice, and the question is, why does he repeat himself when God says something once, he's serious. When he says it twice, he's deadly serious. And he says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And he goes on, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. There are two gates, there are two paths, and there are two destinations. If you want something to do this afternoon, I can't think of any sports that are worth watching or anything on TV, so take your Bible and go to the book of Proverbs and take a colored pen and highlight every time he uses the word way, path, or walk. The message of Proverbs, it's almost like the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus doing a Reader's Digest condensed version of the book of Proverbs. And it, the, the beauty of Proverbs is, is that he reminds us again that every path has a destination. So the way to avoid the unwanted destination or the way to discover the desired destination is to choose wisely the path that you're on. Jesus says here that each path begins with a gate. He says that the gate that leads to life is a narrow gate. How narrow is it? Well, it is as small as the eye of a needle. In Proverbs, over and over, he says that if you're walking the path that is right, there will be thorn bushes along the sides. Not, not to make your life miserable or cruel, but to warn you when you begin to deviate from that which is right, so that, that you scratch your arm or you get a warning to get back on the path. The gate is narrow. In order to enter the narrow gate, it's not attractive because you have to leave everything behind. Think in terms of the turnstiles in Chicago when you get off of Midway, you get off Southwest Airlines at Midway, and you're rushing to get on the L, so you don't want to wait another 20 minutes for the next train. And somebody in front of you has two suitcases and a, and a carry-on, and they're trying to get through the turnstiles without dropping their baggage. The reality is you can't. They, it doesn't work that way. So it is with the narrow gate. You've got to leave it all behind. You've got to leave your former idols all of those things that gave you a false sense of security and significance, you can't take them with you and embrace Christ. All of your religious works. Next week's message, he'll talk about those who did great spiritual religious works in his name, and yet he says, I, I never knew you. Some of us offset our sin. We've got, we got this sin habit going on in our lives, and so we feel bad about having, having committed that again, and so we we try to balance it out by going and signing up to teach another Sunday school class or clean the auditorium. or, or what, we, we look for religious activities to kind of counterweight the sin that we have refused to deal with. We have to leave behind our pet addictions and our sinful habits. If the Son, therefore, will set you free, you shall be free indeed. But the American evangelism message is just simply pray the prayer, and if you're still doing the things you did before, quit worrying about it. Jesus loves you. But you have to recognize that to follow Him means to give up all of those other things that gave me such a great sense of acceptance and well-being. 
And regrettably, you have to often leave your friends and even your closest loved ones. And when I was in my 20s and driving across the backwoods of Wisconsin with my father, he asked me one that day, he says, Tom, when, when would you say that you genuinely became a follower of Jesus? And I, I was almost hesitant because my dad was a very gifted evangelist and Bible teacher. And I'd heard the message of the gospel. I was, I was, here I am in my late 20s and I'm, I'm hesitant to tell him the truth. But I said, Dad, it was when I was 21 studying the gospel of John in Bible college. And tears just burst out. He said, I'm so glad to hear that. You see, for me to become a follower of Jesus meant to be embraced and rejoiced and celebrated by my family. Early on in faith ministry, we had a young woman from the island of Trinidad. Her father was a leading Hindu guru. She heard the gospel and she believed it. She called her dad to tell him. He was obviously brokenhearted and he says, I, I cannot keep you from following Jesus, but just don't be baptized and it'll be okay. If you're baptized, I will write you out of the will and I will disown you. That decision would cost her literally millions of dollars. It would cost her her family and everything she knew. And she came to us and said, I need to be baptized. If Jesus was willing to hang on the cross for me, I must be willing to stand with him in baptism. And it cost her everything. Many of you remember when Satish John from northern India used to come and preach in his pulpit. Satish John is from a royal family lineage. He, he was in line to become one of the rulers and leaders of India. Satish John is not his real name. He would not dare use his real name because there is still a contract out on his life to kill him all these years later. But he remembered as a young man when his older brother, whom he dearly loved and respected, had become a follower of Jesus. And his father kicked his older brother out of the home, sent him away, called all the family together, and they had a funeral. He said, my son has died, he is no more. Satish was so angry about losing his older brother that he hated Christianity, he did everything he could to suppress it. He led a, a student revolt group that would persecute Christians on the university campuses of India. And God, in his amazing grace, stepped into his life and saved him. He tried to keep it a secret, but his mother discovered his conversion. And she told his father. His father called him into his room, into his office, and he reached in the desk and he pulled out a revolver. And he says, I cannot stand having lost two sons. And he aimed the revolver at Satish. And a big angel sat on his finger and would let him pull the trigger. And finally, when he was unable to shoot his own son, he said, you must leave and never contact the family again. They cannot know that I have had two sons convert to Christianity. You see, the gate is narrow. If you want to go through the eye of the needle, you have to leave everything behind, even if it means your loved ones. And it's also hard. Living the counter-Christian life is hard. We, in the 60s, with the Jesus movement, we say, you got problems, trust Jesus. All your problems go away. One of the most popular songs of the day was Jesus made me higher than I've ever been before. Think about what they were talking about when they sang that little tune. It's hard. If you're really sharing the gospel with somebody, you don't tell them that Jesus is the solution to all their problems and life will be easier if they follow him. 
You need to look at them and say, if you follow Jesus, you think life is hard now. You can't imagine what it could be. The word hard simply means to press like the grapes, to press hard upon, to compress the way. Look at chapter 9 of Luke. Turn to the right in your Bible to Luke chapter 9. Notice verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me, but he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead, bury their own dead, but as for you, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. If you would follow Jesus, it will be hard. It will mean poverty. It may mean rearranging your priorities. It's not disrespectful to say, let the dead bury the dead. When he says, I want to bury my father. You see, in, in their culture, in their day, the funerals took place 24 hours after the death, within almost immediately, because of not embalming and, and decay and all. It's not, his father hasn't died, and he just wants that day to go do the funeral. The fact is, dad is still living, but when dad is no longer living, and we've dealt with all of the issues of the family estate, then I'll follow you. Or perseverance means finishing strong, pressing through in the hard times. Matthew 24, 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations. Even in the Old Testament, there was the warning, Deuteronomy 30, 19. At the end of his life and ministry, Moses said to the people, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, holding fast to Him, for He is your life and He is your length of days. There are two gates, two paths, and two destinations. One is destruction and death. The other is life. Greg alluded to this in his prayer. Turn, if you would, to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. Notice the influence of those we travel with. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates night and day. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked, they're not so. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore... The wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 73. The wide road is the attractive road. It's the easy road. It's the, it's the road that the most are traveling upon. And it's, it, it seems like you can have Jesus and the good life too. 
Asaph struggled with this, the great hymn writer of the Old Testament, Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. I'm in verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. I guess that's a good thing. I don't know. I've been trying to lose 10. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff, speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. Their increase, the rich just keep getting richer. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and I wash my hands and inside. I chose the narrow gate and the narrow path. All the days long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places and you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly by tears. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. Proverbs 12, 28 puts it this way, In the path of the righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. Proverbs 16, 17, The highway of the upright turns aside from evil. Whoever guards his way preserves his life. There are only two gates. There's only two paths. You must choose wisely because there are only two destinations. The encouragement is this, that those who choose the path less traveled, they will never walk alone. Matthew 28, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. John chapter 16, I will send another comforter and he will be with you. He will be in you. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you or forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. The distinction between the two paths, as I said, it's almost as though the Sermon on the Mount is a condensation of the book of the Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18, talks about the narrow, the rough, the hard path. This is the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. You make the decision at the beginning and it's hard. Along the way, it's difficult. But as you go along, the Spirit of God encourages you. He, he keeps you going. You persevere because He's leading you and holding you. 
The flip side is the 19th verse. The way of the wicked is like a deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. There are only two gates. There's only two paths. There are only two destinations. You must choose wisely. And then Jesus calling for decisions says, be careful where you walk and with whom you walk. But then he goes on, be careful who you listen to. Beware of false prophets who come into you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Now he kind of does an inclusio. He does a bookend here. Verse 16 and verse 20 repeats the same thing. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by the works. There are two kinds of teachers. There are two kinds of trees, and there are two kinds of fruits. Select carefully who it is you listen to. Now, I want to say right up front, this is not a call to become professional fruit inspectors. He is not asking us. He just started this in chapter 7, verse 1, by saying, don't judge so that you yourselves not be judged. He is not asking us to look at one another and say, do they have the evidence of true faith or not? He's talking about assessing those who are the voices of authority that speak to you. If ever the Christian world needs the gift of discernment, it's today. We have podcasts coming out the wazoo. We've got live stream options all over. When we're in isolated from one another, I must have listened to five or six different preachers every Sunday just because they're everywhere. And just because somebody quotes a few Bible verses doesn't mean that he's spot on. The mark of a false teacher is usually not what he says, but what he avoids saying. So the caution is to be careful who it is that you're listening to. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. Deuteronomy 13.1 talks about it. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, the Apostle Paul, speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus, the most fruitful ministry. I mean, from the city of Ephesus, the gospel spread. When we get into June, we're going to do the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And that, that mail route delivery of those seven churches all were birthed out of his ministry at Ephesus. And yet to that elder team, he made this statement, be careful for yourselves and to all the flocks which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, the elders, the Bible teachers, the shepherds of the church, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, be discerning. 2 Peter 2, verse 1, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. It's the wide road. You can have Jesus and everything you've always loved as well. 
Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Or 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. He says in 16, he says again in 20, you will recognize them by their fruits. So what is the fruit by which we measure those whose voices we hear? The first one is, do they demonstrate the character of the Beatitudes? Are they poor in spirit? Are they confessional in the fact that they are bankrupt spiritually and apart from the saving grace of God, they are hopeless and helpless? Do they mourn over their own sins and the sins of others? Man, I tell you what, the last few years, the number of evangelical influencers who have crashed and burned is just frightening. Do they demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit? Are they filled with love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? What do you look for? First of all, you look for their character. Galatians chapter 5. What kind of people are they? Secondly, you listen to their doctrine. Matthew 12, 33. Again, a false teacher is usually not marked because he is saying something heretical. We usually pick right up on it. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. They look right. They sound right. How do you listen to what they believe? By marking the things they don't address. The sermons they're not willing to preach. The sin issues they are not willing to expose. They have an easy gospel. Anyone can embrace it. Because the cost is low. And you look at their followers. Luke 6, 40 says, It is sufficient when a pupil is fully taught, he becomes like his teacher. So what is the product, the fruit of their leadership? What are the people that are around them? What do they look like? What kind of character do they have? What are their values that they stand for? There are only two gates. There are only two paths. One is narrow, and one's attractive. Choose your path carefully. Jesus comes to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He's not content simply to have the approval, to make an impression, to get the applause of the listener. He's demanding a decision. Each of us must decide. Will I take the easy way, or will I trust Him on the hard way? And there are only two teachers. Listen and watch carefully. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from among us because they were not of us. The most frightening thing about a congregation of people that profess to be followers of Jesus is that among us are many, perhaps, who genuinely believe that they have been saved because their mom and dad encouraged them to remember when they were a child and they prayed a prayer. But the reality is nothing has changed in their heart or in their life. And therefore they will wake to eternal damnation. The church of 2021 is facing a rapidly spreading, devastating pandemic. 
David Platt said, Ayana is not imaginary. She's a real woman I met who had a real choice to become a Christian, to die to herself and to live in Christ no matter what it would cost her. Because of her decision, she was forced to flee her family and became isolated from her friends. Yet she is now working strategically and sacrificially for the spread of the gospel among her own people. The risk is high as every day she dies to herself all over again in order to live in Christ. 2,000 years later, I wonder how far we have wandered from this path. Somewhere along the way, amid varying cultural tides and popular church trends, it seems that we have minimized Jesus' summons to total abandonment. Churches are filled with supposed Christians who seem content to have a casual association with Christ while giving nominal adherence to Christianity. Scores of men, women, and children have been told that becoming a follower of Jesus simply involves acknowledging certain facts and saying certain words. This is not true. Disciples like Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Aeon show us that the call to follow Jesus is not simply an invitation to pray a prayer. It's a summons to lose our lives. Why then would we think that becoming a Christian means anything less for us? Why would we not want to die to ourselves in order to live in Christ? Yes, there is a cost that accompanies stepping out of casual, comfortable, cultural Christianity, but it is worth it. More aptly put, He is worth it. Jesus is worthy of far more than intellectual belief, and there is so much more to following Him than a monotonous spirituality. There is indescribable joy to be found, deep satisfaction to be felt, and an eternal purpose to be fulfilled in dying to ourselves and living for Him. Or as Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ, and yet I live. Not I, but it's Christ that lives in me. And this life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself up for me. We're four minutes over. You're dismissed.